0: Let's just pray together. Father, we ask that you will instruct us in your word. Father, we pray that you will make clear the things that aren't understood. Father, we pray that you'll really implant it in our hearts, because, Lord, if your word really lives in our hearts, then, Lord, we'll overcome the day-to-day problems. Because, Lord, we'll be looking right above them to you. So, Lord, just anoint us now by your Holy Spirit. Because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Right, well, we now come to what I think is our ninth study in the whole area that we're covering. And that is what the Bible says about salvation. Now, what we're going to do tonight, in fact, is sort of like a bridge study, all right? And it's going to link what we have covered so far with the area that we must now move on to. And what I want to show is we'll start, I mean, our series is on salvation. So where we're going to start tonight is to actually, what does the word mean? I mean, the Bible talks about salvation. The Bible talks about being saved. What exactly does salvation mean? Because I'm going to show you that it's bigger than most people think. We have a very limited idea of what salvation is. Now, in the Greek, the noun salvation is soteria. And the verb that we get from that, to save, all right, Jesus saves, is sozo. all right. Now, this word in Greek, what does it mean? Well, it means to save, yes. But it means to deliver. It means to preserve from harm. So that in English, when sailors get in a mess and their ship sinks and they send out an SOS, save our souls, souls, i.e. come and help us, rescue us, that's precisely what the word means. And we're gonna start looking at the, the magnitude of the rescuing that Jesus has actually done. Now also, from the word salvation, we get the word salvage, and this is also, you know, kind of tied up in it. Only the difference is that God doesn't salvage for scrap. I mean, if a ship sinks or something, they they salvage it for scrap. But when God salvages, it's not for scrap, it's to totally restore and even to improve upon. And this is what we're going to see. Now, in order to kind of show you where we're going, if you turn with me to Romans 5 and a verse that we more or less ended on, last time. And in Romans 5, and if you just find verse 1. Now, you've heard me say here before in prior studies that everything that God does fits. It all makes absolute sense I.e. in Genesis 1.1 we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now we know that we live in a space-time continuum. We know that matter, the material universe, cannot exist apart from time. So the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning there's time, God created the heavens and the earth, there's matter. And it fits. Can you see? Time and space. In exactly the same way, some time ago, we did some studies on the gifts of the Spirit. And again, I showed you that they fitted. The gifts of the Spirit were for people. Now, as people, we work in the areas of thought, word, and deed. And we saw that three of the gifts were to do with thoughts, three were to do with deed, and three were to do with um, word. And so, everything God does fits. Now, it's exactly the same with salvation. Because what I want to show you now is that we're going to move on in these studies and to start to understand that salvation relates to the past and the present and the future. We live in time, and they are the three aspects of time. And that what we're going to move on to see is quite simply this. That if we say, as Christians, that we have been saved, That is only one tiny aspect of salvation. And we're going to see that not only have we been saved, but that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Now, just read Romans 5, verse 1 and 2 with me. Therefore, remember this was the verse we were on last time, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now then, think about this. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, that has been done once and for all. That is past tense. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We have access to grace now. There's the present tense. And he goes on to say, we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. So in Romans 5, verse 1 to 2, we have salvation, past, present, and future. And I want to try and bring this out. Now, in some ways, as thus far, all our past... teaching on this, has prepared a foundation which we're now going to lay on. Tonight, I'm going to lay another foundation for the teaching that we are going to move on to. And I want to do it like this. We're going to see that salvation relates not just to the past, but to the present and to the future as well. Now then, past salvation relates to salvation from the penalty of sin. We're going to see, though that not only is salvation past it's present and that salvation in the present tense is salvation from the power of sin and that our future salvation goes even one step more not salvation from the penalty of sin that's past not salvation from the power of sin that's present but in the future what awaits us is salvation from <coughs> the very presence of sin could you repeat those three that's right i will that and there's quite a lot to put down so don't ask me to repeat all this because you can get the tapes. So i'll go over it again past salvation is from the penalty of sin present salvation as we're going to see is from the power of sin and future salvation, which we will move on to even later in the course, is salvation from the presence of sin. Now, get the terminology. Past salvation, salvation from the penalty of sin, in the Bible, is called justification. Salvation, Present salvation, from the power of sin, is called sanctification. And future salvation, from the presence of sin... Is called, in the Bible, glorification. Now, this is all the ground we're going to cover in detail in later studies, but I want you to get an idea of where we're going. And also, we're going to be seeing that past salvation from the penalty of sin was through Jesus' death. But we're going to see that present salvation from the power of sin is not through Jesus' death, It's through Jesus' resurrection. And we're then going to move on to see that future salvation... ...from the presence of sin... ...is not by Jesus' death... ...not by his being raised again from the dead... ...but future salvation from the presence of sin... ...is going to be by Jesus' return. And also, we will cover this. We will move on eventually... ...to studies and referring to judgment, the judgment of God. And we will see that there are different judgments for different circumstances. And that in regards to past salvation, the world, because it's separated from God, is under God's judgments as sinners. Now, we are saved. That is past salvation. There is no judgment on us as sinners. But in regards to our present salvation, there is a judgment on us, not as sinners, but as sons, the sons of God. And we'll be seeing this judgment as it works in our lives. And in regards to the future, we're going to see as well that for us, one day in the future, at the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be yet another judgment on us, and that will be a judgment on us as servants, our service to God through this life. Now, we're going to cover these all in great detail. Now, for the time being, first of all, let's just say quickly, past salvation, right? We're saying that salvation has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Now, let's just cover quickly past salvation. Salvation from the penalty of sin. This is what we've been covering in the last eight studies, all right? We're not going to go over it again except very, very quickly tonight. And I've already said that because we have believed on Jesus, we have passed salvation. We have been saved. And that this salvation, as we have seen, is what the Bible calls justification. Justification by faith. Now, because we have believed... That means that once and for all, we have been saved from any judgment by God as sinners. Our past salvation from the penalty of sin is once and for all. All right? That is completely past. We've believed. We are saved in regards to God's judgment and the penalty of sin. And that can't be undone. But the way to think of it, all right, justification justified that it means this, justified, never sinned, all right? Justified, never sinned, because God has declared us innocent. Now, let's just very quickly just recap and look at a few scriptures just to see this. Go to Romans 8, verse 1, and now we are strictly just a quick revision of what we've done in the previous studies. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, And remember in Greek, the word for condemnation, judgment, damnation, it's all the same word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Past salvation, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Go over into Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, and first of all we'll look at verse 5. When Paul says, even when we were dead through our trespasses... He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why? Because we're not dead in our sins. We were born again when we believed in Jesus. Go over into verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All right? Before God we are justified. As I say, it's justified. Never sinned. I've been declared innocent by God because I've believed on Jesus the same with all who do. Move over into Paul's letter to Titus which is after Timothy you get 1 Timothy 2 Timothy let's have a look at Titus Titus chapter 3 verse 5 and it's speaking about God he says he saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness but in virtue of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration that's been born again and renewal in the Holy Spirit. So there we have it, because we've believed on Jesus, been born again, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Now, what are the results of that then? Just go back to Jeremiah, and I just want to show you a few verses which sum up what that actually means for us. If you find Jeremiah in chapter 31, and I'm going to read verse 34. And this is God speaking, And no longer shall each man teach his neighbour, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God will remember your sin no more. And that's why it is that when we sin and confess it to the Lord... If we say, oh, sorry, Lord, I've done it again, he says, what? Have you done that before? Because with confession comes the total erasing of that sin. There's no record of our sins in heaven at all. Go back into Psalms and find Psalm 103 and verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, and we're talking about an infinite distance now. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is the extent of the removal of our sins, as far as the east is from the west. And that distance is an infinite distance. All right. Go to Micah. That's a bit later on in the Old Testament. But in Micah and chapter seven, I'm going to read from verse 18. Who is a God like thee, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions, and uh, for the remnant of his inheritance? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us, for he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And there's a little sign over it that says, no fishing, all right? (laughs) So therefore, we can see the completeness of our past salvation saved from the penalty of sin. Now go to Hebrews and chapter 10 because I just want to show you quickly what I said earlier. The means of our past salvation is this. Hebrews 10 verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins He sat down at the right hand of God. The idea of sitting down being that he finished his work. When you finish your work, you sit down and relax. Now the point is that Jesus, through one sacrifice, has dealt with for all time the question of sin. But notice, our salvation from the penalty of sin, or past salvation, was through Jesus' death. Because that was the sacrifice, the death of Jesus on the cross. So there is past salvation. But what we must move on to now is to see quickly our present salvation. You see, because the thing is this, God is not what I call the a half-a-job Harry. What God does, he always does properly. Now, the thing is this, we have not merely been saved from the penalty of sin, and that's it, lads. No way. Because having saved us from the penalty of sin, the Lord now wants to move on in us and to set us free from the power of sin in our lives. And this is something going on moment by moment in the present tense. Now, you see, modern Christianity has tended to be stuck on this very point. You see, the thing is this, Jesus didn't just want to work on the cross. You see, certainly we preach Christ crucified, But you see, you can preach Christ crucified in such a way that you're actually limiting what Jesus wants to do. Because Jesus didn't just want to do a work on the cross. Jesus, having done the work on the cross, now wants to do a work at this moment. Can you see? It's not just that he has worked on the cross. Jesus wants to go on working. See, Jesus died, and when he did, he gave his life as a ransom for many past salvation. But here's the thing. He rose again from the dead. Jesus is alive. And whereas his death is over once and for all, his life continues. For instance, at the Lord's Table, and I find this at some churches when I go, I often preach this to them, you know, Communion, because, I mean, wow, boy, can Communion be bad in some churches. And that, whereas it's true that when Paul teaches about the Lord's Table, he says that we remember his death, and quite rightly, because it's by his death that we've got past salvation, I often emphasise that at the Lord's Table we're remembering his death we're not attending his funeral, all right, but a lot of churches take communion as if it's Jesus's funeral service, because in the same teaching that Paul gives in Corinthians, he says that we're remembering the Lord's death until he come. Can you see, it's looking forward, the emphasis being that Jesus is alive now. Now, what I want to show you is that having dealt with past salvation, we've centred on the death of Jesus. But as we move into looking at present salvation or sanctification, we're going to be homing in, not on the fact that he died, but on the fact that he was raised from the dead and that he's alive today. Go back to Romans chapter 5, and this time move on to verse 10. And I want to show you where Paul emphasises this very thing. Romans 5 verse 10. Now listen to this. It's very important. He says... For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Now, that's past salvation, isn't it? That's justification, being reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, all right? And Paul says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, past salvation, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Can you see? Paul's bringing in another aspect of salvation here. And it's salvation not by the death of Jesus, but salvation through the life of Jesus. Because he's now talking about present salvation from the power of sin. So remember, past salvation from the penalty of sin, great, you're saved. But then God moves you on and begins to work in present salvation, i.e. setting you free from the power of sin in your life and this is done through the life of Jesus go back into Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 7 forward, forward. forward. I meant to go back to Hebrews in that we had been there a few moments ago <laughs> once again I was misunderstood by my wife All Right? ok Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 And Paul says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Can you see here the emphasis on this salvation, because it's not past salvation, it's present salvation from the power of sin, the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus is alive. Now then, we have seen thus far in the course what the secret of salvation from the penalty of sin was, didn't we? We saw that the secret of salvation from the penalty of sin was not what we did. Salvation from the penalty of sin was because of what Jesus did. It was because Jesus died, not what we did. And what we're going to move on to see... Is that the secret of salvation from the power of sin is, again, not what we do. I'm going to demonstrate to you that you being set free from the power of sin in your life is not going to be through what you do. It's going to be what Jesus does, but not that he died. It's going to be because Jesus is alive in us. We were saved from the penalty of sin because Jesus died but we can now be saved from the power of sin because Jesus is alive. His death saved us from the penalty of sin, but it's his life that's going to save us from the power of sin in our lives. Go to Philippians. (coughs) And again, on exactly this same point, this is Paul speaking. Philippians chapter 3, we'll start reading from verse 4. Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If any man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to say what a religious man he was. And then in verse 7 he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now there, that is past salvation. But listen to this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Can you see? Paul, having reiterated that it was by faith in Jesus and his death that saved him from the penalty of sin, Paul says, but now the problem is the power of sin, and I want to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Can you see sanctification, salvation from the power of sin in our lives, is through the life of Jesus. Do you remember in the last study I gave you Christianity in five words? You can't, but he can, all right? And we saw that we've been saved from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus did. But you see, we have been saved from the penalty of sin to live holy lives, to now be set free from the power of sin, or sanctification, as it's called, present salvation. Now then, the problem is this, that many Christians, they've been set free from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus did. They realize that it wasn't because of anything they do, they realize it was purely because of what Jesus did. But having realized that they've been saved by what Jesus did, they are now struggling every day to overcome the power of sin in their lives through what they do. Can you see? They agree that past salvation was because of what Jesus did. But they make out that present salvation is by trying hard and being really committed. When we're going to see that present salvation or sanctification is exactly the same. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus does. And that trying to overcome the power of sin in your own strength by trying ever so hard is as ridiculous as an unbeliever trying to get saved from the penalty of sin by trying ever so hard it's only what Jesus does that can be of any good at all we couldn't earn salvation from the penalty of sin we accepted it as a free gift now sanctification or salvation from the power of sin is in exactly the same way it's a gift we receive from God quite simply through faith think of it like this what are we saying we're saying that the present tense of salvation is to be set free from the power of sin in our lives or sanctification as the bible calls it now think of it like this present salvation okay it's in the present tense it's happening now now then think of this present salvation in the present tense What's a present? It's a gift. And a gift is something that you don't earn, you simply accept it by faith. I mean, you don't try to get presents at Christmas, do you? You simply accept them as a gift. Imagine a little boy, all right? uh, It's Christmas Eve and he's upstairs and he's lying in bed and he's trying ever so hard to get his, his, his presents on Christmas morning. Well, I mean, he can try as hard as he like, but the point is the next morning he'll go downstairs and mum and dad will simply give him the presents. Can you see? It's ridiculous to try hard to earn a gift. You get it simply by receiving it. Now, in future studies, we're going to move on to see in the Bible exactly how it is that by faith in Jesus, day by day, we can get freedom over the power of sin in our lives. And what we're going to see, very quickly, is simply that our sin nature, our sinfulness, was incorporated into the death of Jesus. And that the power of sin in our lives is neutralised to the extent that we abide in Jesus. Now, that's what we're going to be moving on to look at in future studies. i just give you a hint of it there so you know what we're going to be proceeding on to in future weeks. But suffice it to say, here, this far, at the moment, is that present salvation is to be saved from the power of sin in our lives now that we are Christians. Now, just quickly, let me return to what I started off. With, we're seeing that in the Bible, salvation, which simply means to save or to deliver or to preserve from harm, has a much wider application than simply having been saved from the lake of fire. And we're going to see the scope of it in future studies. But what I want to do now is to just look at a few problem verses, because now we understand this concept that salvation can mean to. Uh, free, you know, to save from harm in any sense. We'll look at a few verses which will make sense to you now. First of all, if you go to 1 Peter and chapter 3, and I'm deliberately picking verses that, that baffle people and false teaching gets put onto them. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, all right? Let's, let's start from verse 20. Who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Now here's the bit. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now then, can you see how from that verse, certain Christians preach that you're not saved until you get baptised? Because here, Peter says, baptism now saves you. And they teach that even if you've believed on Jesus, if you die without having been baptized as a believer then you're lost and they say here's a verse that says it baptism saves you now then can you see with the background i've given you we can now understand this verse look at the context baptism saves you but in what way not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a clear conscience this is to do with being set free from the power of sin it's present salvation And what we see here in this verse is not that you get salvation from the penalty of sin by being baptised, but that in order to be fully released in the power of God, to be set free from the power of sin, you must be baptised. Baptism is essential, not for salvation or justification, Baptism is essential for sanctification. It's a means whereby the power of God is released in you so that sin can be beaten in your own life. So then, therefore, baptism is essential for sanctification. It's not essential for getting to heaven. Believing in Jesus is essential for getting to heaven. Uh, Go to the epistle of James. Because I'm showing you how the Bible uses this idea of salvation in a much broader context than normally we think. And in James 1 verse 21, he says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now some people say that uh, salvation is by reading the Bible. Because it says here that it's the Word of God that saves our souls. Can you see? It's talking about present salvation. If I... um, It's like David, he says, ''How shall I keep myself from sin?'' ''I will hide your word in my heart.'' Can you see? This is speaking about the importance of the Word of God, the truth of Scripture, in delivering us from the power of sin. It's got nothing to do with being saved in the sense of going to heaven. Um, another example. Go to the first letter of Timothy. And we're going to look at two here. And in the <coughs> first letter that Paul writes to Timothy, and find chapter 4, and verse 16. <coughs> and he says, Take heed to yourself <coughs> and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers now some people make of this verse that unless a pastor is working really hard at being a teacher and unless the flock are working really hard at being taught they might lose their salvation because it says for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers almost as if if you're not constantly in the word of god you won't be saved what's it talking about go back to verse four let's see the context now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons the context of this is paul is saying that the greatest danger that the church is going to face is false teaching all right now in verse 16 he says now look timothy But if you take heed to yourself and your teaching, if you make sure that you are teaching the truth the whole time, then you will save yourself and your church from the danger of false teaching. Can you see? It simply means to be delivered in this context from false teaching. Okay. So don't assume that every time you see the word save in the Bible that it's talking about, as it were, salvation from... penalty of sin very often it's simply talking about god saving you or delivering you in a certain situation whether it's from the power of sin or whether it's from the power of false teaching or whatever and just one more in timothy go back into chapter 2 and verse 15 and this is a lulu boy does this get people all right yet women shall be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, boy, is this one of the verses that that through the centuries the the, the male chauvinist pigs in the kingdom of God have latched onto to repress the ladies? And here they say that women are safe through bearing children. You know, if a woman's really to, to know that she's safe, Then she'd better just keep bearing children for her husband and modesty and faith and all this sort of thing. Keep her under the thumb and then she can know that she's saved. Now, what on earth is it talking about? Let's look at it. Yet woman will be saved through bearing children. Saved sozo. What does it mean? It means to save, to deliver, to preserve from harm. Try it like this. Yet woman will be preserved from harm. Through bearing children or in bearing children. Now, that means quite simply this we take safe childbirth for granted nowadays. But believe me, 2000 years ago, that was not the case. Still, births and children dying in birth and mothers dying as a result of bearing children because of infection was commonplace in the ancient world. Here, we have a promise that assuming a christian woman is continuing in faith love holiness and modesty i.e assuming that any woman is in ongoing fellowship with the lord and right with him here is a promise of safety when you have children can you see it's as simple as that you know and yet if you don't understand that this concept of being saved covers more than simply saved from hellfire you're going to get into trouble But I'm just showing you here the various ways that this applies, and it clears up uh, quite a lot of misunderstanding. Right, so, remember, we've covered now, very quickly, we've looked at past salvation, alright, from the penalty of sin justification, alright? We've had a quick dip into salvation from the power of sin present all right and we've seen that that's sanctification all right now that is what we move on next for quite a few studies and then having come to the end of that we move on to this one and i just give you a little kind of glimpse of the sort of stuff to come because future salvation is going to be salvation from the presence of sin all right or what the Bible calls to be glorified or glorification. And we will see, in great detail, that in exactly the same way that past salvation is by the death of Jesus, and that present salvation is through the life of Jesus, we're going to see that glorification, salvation from the presence of sin, is going to be through the return of Jesus. Let's just have a quick dip into this to get you all excited about things we'll be doing in the months to come. If you go back into Hebrews, and if you find chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, right? So, let's, let's start from verse 27. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Can you see a future salvation when Jesus returns? Go back into Romans, Romans chapter 5. We've been there once, we'll go back there again. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. We've already seen verse 10. This is the verse that goes in front of it. Since, therefore, we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, there's future salvation. Can you see that? Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. And remember, as we're going to see, the wrath of God is all tied up with the end of the world and everything like that, and we'll be moving on to that area later on. And you see, what we're just taking a quick dippy-dippy into at the moment is this, that the day is going to come when God is going to judge sin totally, and he's going to rid the universe of it completely and what we're going to move on to see is that the present universe that we live in is going to be destroyed and when the present this world and the universe we live in now when that has been destroyed and all sin with it satan and all the evil spirits and all the unbelievers remember we are immortal when you die you don't just snuff it you carry on existing for eternity but the unbelievers who died outside of christ along with satan and the demons they are the only causes of sin left they will be consigned eternally to the lake of fire so we have the destruction of the universe we live in now satan all the evil spirits and all the unbelievers will be thrown eternally into the lake of fire. Now, let's just see this, all right? If you go to Matthew 25, and this was a verse we did take a little look at last time. And (coughs) in Matthew 25 and verse 41, we read this. This is Jesus speaking to unbelievers at the second coming. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels go on to revelation chapter 20 and in revelation 20 verse 10 And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. All right? Now there's the eternal judgment of the lake of fire for Satan and the unbelievers. Now go back into the second letter of Peter. Because remember I said that the universe is going to be destroyed. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. We read this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. Now there we have the coming total destruction of the entire universe, the heaven and the earth. Now what's interesting about that is that this word that gets translated dissolved, Alright, dissolved with fire, etc, etc. In the Greek, that word is luo. And it comes from the Greek verb which means to loose or to let go. Now what we see here is that one day the universe is going to be loosed. And it's very interesting that in in, um, Colossians 1 verse 17, we're told of Jesus that in him all things hold together. Now, since Einstein and uh, you know all the twentieth-century uh, stuff we've learned about physics and the atom, something very fascinating has emerged, and it's simply this: we know that all matter boils down to atoms, and atoms are made up of many, many different subatomic particles. Now, every atom has a centre. Particles at the centre of the atom. All right. Now, what's interesting is this: that We know that according to the law of physics that these particles, under normal circumstances, should fly apart. But they're held together, and in the middle of the atom, the laws of physics are reversed. (coughs) And particles, which because of their electrical charges should fly apart, in actual fact, hold together against all the known laws of physics. Now, therefore, everything in this universe, because everything is made up of these atoms, is being held together against all the known laws of physics. And we read in Colossians that in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. And we read in the Bible that one day the entire universe is going to be destroyed. And we read that when that happens, it's going to be loosed, all right? It's going to be stopped being held together, and it's going to, when that happens, there's going to be fire. Now, the point is this. I think that, you know, this thing about the laws of physics being reversed at the centre of the atom, I think this is God's sense of humour. Because, you see, why do they hold together when they shouldn't? Well, I'll tell you, because Jesus is holding them together. The whole universe is held together by Jesus. But when the day comes when he doesn't need this universe anymore, what's he going to do? Well, he'll simply stop holding it together. And when the power of Jesus, which is holding these particles in every atom together, when Jesus lets go of that power, what's going to happen? Every atom in the universe is spontaneously going to fly apart, and that is when you have an atomic nuclear explosion, you see. Now, isn't that interesting? So we see here that the universe will literally one day be destroyed in a massive nuclear chain reaction. So then, by then, what's happened? is that the fall is then going to be totally undone. Remember that because Adam sinned, uh, sin came into the human race and it came into the universe. And God's eventual plan is to totally undo everything that happened at the fall of man. But in order for that to happen, remember, what are we saying? The universe has been destroyed. All the unbelievers and Satan and the demons are in the lake of fire, but the universe has been destroyed. So, therefore, for the effects of the fall to be totally undone, there are two things that we're going to need in our future salvation, all right? And the first one is quite simply this. We're going to need a new universe, aren't we? Because if the old one that was contaminated by sin has been blown up, (laughs) all right, and isn't there anymore, we're going to need a new universe that isn't tainted by sin. Go now to Romans 8. Remember, at the moment, we're touching on future salvation. Deliverance from the presence of sin. And in Romans 8, and verse 20, um... Let's just start in verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So here, the context is talking about the future. Now, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay ...and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what we have here is that Paul is saying... ...that the universe is suffering from the effects of sin. One day it's going to be set free... ...because it's going to be destroyed and a new one's going to happen. But Paul says that there are two things working in the universe... ...which are a direct result of the power of sin. The first one is this, futility. The creation was subjected to futility... Now, it's interesting because this Greek word, futility, is mataiotes, all right? It sounds a bit like a Spanish matador, doesn't it? But mateotis. And what it literally means is this. Emptiness as regarding results. I'll say that again. Futility, emptiness, as regarding results. Now, really, what that means is this. We're talking about emptiness. We're talking about Aimlessness we're talking about purposelessness. The complete sense of what is the meaning to life. All right? Now, isn't it interesting? Because I've often demonstrated to you that if someone says there is no God, which many people do, the logical result of there not being a God is that... The whole universe is just an accident. It's just a chance accident. Now, if the universe is an accident, any idea of right, wrong, meaning, purpose to life are ludicrous. If the universe is an accident, an accident is the opposite of a purpose. If you have an accident, you didn't do it on purpose. And if you did it on purpose, then you didn't have an accident. Can you see what I'm saying? So the point is that in a universe that has rejected God, the result of that is going to be purposelessness. This feeling of futility. Now that is exactly what we see in men and women. That's exactly what we see reflected in the universe in which we live in. This futility, this vanity, this sense of, oh, there's no purpose. And people out there struggling to find or make a purpose to life. And of course, they're not able to do it. And the result of purposelessness is despair. And if there's one word you can put on the age in which we live in today, it's the age of despair. It's the age when all the bubbles have been burst, when all the dreams have been shattered. We live in the age of futility, the age of despair. And it's built into the universe now as a result of the sin of Adam. But the second thing that Paul says, he talks about futility, but he says also set free from its bondage to decay. The second mark of a fallen universe is that it's decaying. Now, this Greek word decay, All right. It means to bring into a worse or inferior condition. All right. To bring into a worse or an inferior condition. Now, again, interestingly enough, in modern science today, there are two fundamental laws which govern all of science. These are fundamental laws which are accepted by all science, uh, by all scientists. They are proven, fundamental, scientific laws. And they are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not going to get too involved, but I'm going to explain very, very simply. There are two, a first law and a second. Now, the first law of thermodynamics is this. It's the law of energy conservation, all right? And it simply states this. States this Energy, or matter, can be converted from one form into another, but can be neither created nor destroyed. Now, we know that matter and energy are the same thing in different forms, but what we know is that energy, or matter, cannot be created, it cannot be destroyed. It can simply pass from one form into another. So what does this tell us? Well, if matter cannot be created or destroyed that tells us that the universe didn't happen on its own it's funny the base law of modern science is the very law which makes it impossible for the universe to have happened on its own all right but the one we're interested in leads directly to that and it's the second law of thermodynamics which is the law of energy decay and it's this energy continually proceeds to lower levels of utility from order to disorder finally reaching a state of complete randomness and unavailability for further work. Now, what it's saying is this, that everything, the universe, is like a clock that's winding down, all right? I mean, take the energy in the sun. Now, every day the sun is pouring out its energy, but most of that energy is lost full time it's becoming useless energy can you see what I mean it's just being wasted throughout the universe now this is what it means that anything in the universe given enough time leave it to itself eventually it will run down it will become chaotic and simply to um, to demo that if you buy yourself a brand spanking new car and if you park it outside your house and never touch it again then in ten years you have a classic example of the second law of thermodynamics because it's falling to bits. Can you see? It's decaying. Now, this is throughout the universe. and In actual fact, scientists know not only is the universe like a clock that's winding down, but the point is that, left to itself, one day that clock will wind down completely until it isn't going anymore. And again, what is so interesting is that this tells us that the universe couldn't always have been here. The universe couldn't possibly be eternal. At one time, the clock had to be been wound up, up, which means we know the universe had a definite beginning. But eventually, the universe will die what's called a heat death, left to itself. Every sun will have eventually burnt out. All the energy will be so dispersed throughout the universe that there'll be no heat, all there'll be is cold, dead matter one day left to itself the universe will die this is what this decay in the universe is all about so as we have seen because the old universe isn't any good anymore and because one day it's going to be destroyed anyway we are going to need a brand new one now go back to peter the second letter of peter and chapter three And verse 13, we've read the preceding verses about this universe being destroyed. But verse 13, but according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Go back to Isaiah 65. I want you to see that all this is all over all the Bible, all right? Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And then over in chapter 66 and verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. Okay? And go over into Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So there we have it, there is one day going to be a new universe, and there must be if the effect of the fall is to be undone. So then, we need a new universe, but we also need something else. And what we need is this, we're going to need new bodies to live in this new universe. These old ones just won't do, all right? You've only got to cast a cursory glance around at us, and you'll see that in a few thousand years' time, uh, these current ones are not going to be any good, okay? So we're going to need new bodies so we can live in the new universe that God's going to make for us. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. And Paul says this, uh, some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. God gives in a body as he has chosen. He says, For not all flesh is alike, but there is one for men, one for animals, one for birds, one for fish. There are celestial bodies, there are terrestrial bodies, all right? And then he goes down, and in uh, verse 43, he says, It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body but is raised the spiritual one. Now, basically, all Paul's doing in these verses, and remember, we're just dipping now into something we're going to look at great detail at later on in the course. But we're just seeing that Paul says that there are different kinds of body, and that one day we are going to need a body just like Jesus got when he was raised from the dead. Go to the first epistle of John. First epistle of John, chapter 3, and verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, you see, we're talking about the return of Jesus. For we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. See, one day we will have a glorified body. Future salvation, glorification, we will one day have a glorified body just like Jesus's. Now go back to Romans 8 again. Romans 8, read verse 19 first. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now we'll see in future studies that it's receiving the new bodies when the sons of God are actually revealed in all their glory. Go down to verse 23, 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that one day we're going to see that we will have a body just like Jesus' resurrection body. A body that is beyond the limitations of space and time. Which means that the day is coming when, with Jesus, we will have a new universe at our feet. Because we will have bodies like Jesus's, which are beyond the limitations of space and time, in fact, will be beyond all limitation of any kind, and the universe will be at our feet. You see, the thing is that sin should never have happened. When God created everything, it was never his intention that it be anything other than absolutely perfect. Sin was not meant to happen. But obviously... If God is to give creatures free will, then obviously there is the chance of sin, and God was perfectly aware of that. God gave us free will because he has free will, and because of man's free will, sin came in and wrecked everything. But of course, that didn't take God by surprise. He always knew that sin would come in and spoil everything. And of course, he had the answer for it before it ever happened. Because right from the foundation of the earth, Jesus was waiting to die on the cross to solve the sin problem. So then, the point is that by the time we get to future salvation, we're going to see that there's a new universe, totally untainted by sin. We will have new bodies, just like Jesus' glorified body. And that we're going to see that then, God will have, in reality what he had always wanted and it's this a bigger family where all the kids are just like Dad, just like Dad, with a universe to play in. now for some people that might sound a little bit unspiritual that that is our eternity but that is what eternity is going to be god will have his family He will have his children who are absolutely like he is without sin in any way at all. And of course all of us, I mean if you've got kids, isn't it lovely for kids to have a big garden to play in? Well God's not going to have a big garden for us to play in. He's going to have a big whole new universe for us to play in. And that we are going to be there with Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit throughout eternity. You should still be in Romans 8. I want to read it again now. Now listen to what Paul's saying. We'll start at verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be revealed to us. For the creation waits with these eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Go down into 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. But not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for adoption of sons and the redemption of the body. But go back into verse 21 and get this because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, can you see the basis of our lives in future salvation is this? It's liberty. Liberty, freedom. Now, think of what Jesus said. If the Son shall set you free, you will be free indeed. Remember, we are going to be glorified just like Jesus. What is one of the fundamental attributes that God has? I'll tell you. It's absolute freedom. God can do exactly what he wants, when he wants. And throughout eternity, you and I, being glorified with Jesus, are going to be absolutely like Father. And because we are totally sinless, do you know what that means? Father can do what he likes, when he likes. And throughout eternity, in glorified bodies, in a totally new universe, you and I, as God's children, will be able to do what we like, when we like. And I put it to you that that is the child's dream. And I'll put it to you that that is what God always wanted. He wanted kids. He wanted a family to share everything he was and everything he could do with And that will be our eternal future with Jesus, the absolute child's dream. But to suffice it for now, okay, just turn to Romans chapter 6. And what's going to happen now, as I say, this is kind of a bridge study... To link what we've covered, past salvation, with what we're moving on to cover, uh, present and future salvation. Now, the next studies, the next phase or stage of this series that we're doing is going to be looking at present salvation. And we're going to look at sanctification, salvation from the power of sin. And then when we complete that section, we then move on to the third section with a series of studies on future salvation, the last things... How the world ends, what our future in the end of the world, etc. etc. But just for the time being, Romans 6 and verse 22, just to, to bang home this point that I'm making, just to get across to you that salvation is past, present, and future. And in Romans 6 verse 22, Paul says this But now that you have been set free from sin, that's past salvation. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification. That's now present salvation. So the return you get is sanctification and its end, future, eternal life. Now, can you see, in the whole of the Bible, all Paul's writings and the rest of the Bible, we have this idea there that salvation is not just to be saved from the penalty of sin it's much much more and next time we start to look in detail at present salvation from the power of sin or sanctification as the bible calls it and then after that uh the really terrific exciting stuff as we move on to future salvation but that will be in a few months time right we'll end there